two, three. From, From coast, coast to coast to coast, to coast you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Carter Gorzitza. And I'm Amanda Rooney. This week, we are going to hear an eco-babble about Earth Day with some input from the public. And after, we'll dip into the archives with an interview with Canada's own superstar, Chris Hadfield. That's all coming up on Terra Informa, but first, we have some headlines. On Friday, April 21st, for the first 24-hour period since the Industrial Revolution, the country of Britain burned no coal for power generation. The National Grid confirmed that Britain used gas, nuclear, wind, and solar power to keep engines running and lights on. In 1884, Britain was the first country in the world to use coal for energy generation. This new record is a historic step towards a cleaner and greener economy, though much remains to be done to achieve international commitments to tackle climate change. Coal-free days will be increasingly common in the future as the polluting fuel is phased out and renewables play an increasing role in British power generation. And on the topic of coal, one of three power generation companies in Alberta, TransAlta, announced on Thursday, April 20th, that they will be accelerating the closure of coal-fired power plants in Alberta. TransAlta will close the first coal-fired generator in less than nine months, two years earlier than required by the federal regulations. All of TransAlta's coal-fired plants will be closed by 2023, a full six years earlier than the official closure date of December 31, 2029. The Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, or CAPE, is celebrating this decision publicly. According to Dr. Joe Vipind, a CAPE board member, quote, This is great news for the health of Albertans. Our children will breathe easier and have less exposure to brain-damaging mercury, and their grandparents will have increased risk of cardiovascular, pulmonary, and neurological disorders. End quote. According to Kim Perota, executive director at CAPE, quote, This is great news for the climate as well. The 18 coal-fired units in Alberta account for 17% of the greenhouse gases emitted in Alberta. Alberta's climate leadership plan is working. It is sending the right signals to the industry, end quote. Edmontonians are especially positioned to celebrate, as all of these medically proven to be dangerous coal plants lie directly upwind from the capital city. That's pretty chill. Sure is, Amanda. Earth Day began as the environmentalist movement was making its voice heard with protests and educational teach-ins. Today, Earth Day is celebrated across the planet, although its focus has largely turned from political issues to small-scale individual action. Next up, Lauren Carter gives us the rundown on how this transition happened and how the March for Science is changing. April 22nd marks Earth Day, 
one of the most widely celebrated non-secular holidays. Earth Day is coming up on Saturday. Do you, did you know that? Ah, uh, no. Did you know it was Earth Day coming up? No. Okay, despite a couple of people not knowing the significance of the day, let me assure you, it is one of the most widely celebrated non-secular holidays. According to the Earth Day Network, it's celebrated in 192 countries. And they should know, they coordinate most of the events. This is an eco-babble on the origins of Earth Day. The protests, the celebrations, the impact of corporate consumption. I'll take you on a celestial ride through the decades, from John McConnell's Earth Day proclamation in 1969 to the March for Science protests of 2017. We'll explore the spirit of Earth Day and how its meaning has shifted as we move through time and space. The first Earth Day was celebrated in 1970, and it had all the heart and soul of the 1960s. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius, age of Aquarius, Aquarius, The 1960s was the beginning of the environmental movement in the West. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was, was released in 1962. There was the widely publicized Santa Barbara oil spill of 1969. And perhaps most significantly, we went to space. As Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we went to the moon and we discovered the Earth. Apollo 8 gave us the legendary Earthrise photograph, and soon after, Apollo 11 put human beings on the moon. Poet Archibald MacLeish said, quote, To see the Earth as it truly is, small and blue and beautiful in that eternal silence where it floats, is to see ourselves as riders on the earth together. In a 1970 article, the New York Times commented that Earth Day should also be called Space Day. Seeing Earth from space started a passionate worldwide interest in our own ecological fragility. The first Earth Day was the brainchild of American Senator Gaylord Nelson on April 22, 1970. But before him came peace activist John McConnell. John McConnell spoke to the United Nations in 1969, and he wrote an Earth Day proclamation that was signed by over a dozen countries, including Canada, to celebrate Earth Day on the vernal equinox, that is, March 21st. The proclamation is profound prose and speaks about the unity of Earthlings, or as McConnell calls them, Earth Keepers. Stay tuned, you'll hear an abridged version of the proclamation at the end of this eco-babble. 20 million Americans participated in Earth Day on April 22, 1970. At a rally in Washington, 
protesters against offshore drilling spilled oil in front of a government building. Now, that may have been counterproductive, but the message was clear. In New York City, one powerful image shows a demonstrator smelling a flower while wearing a gas mask. Gas masks were popular protest props in the 1950s and 60s, and they represent the idea that our ecology is under assault. In addition to protests, there were environmental teach-ins, inspired by the teach-ins used by the anti-war protesters. There were impressive speakers, like renowned anthropologist Margaret Mead, and music concerts. Welcome, sulfur dioxide. Hello, carbon monoxide. The air, the air is everywhere. Breathe deep while you sleep. Breathe deep, bless you. The 1990s saw another big development for Earth Day. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. In 1990, Earth Day went global, with environmental groups in 141 countries mobilizing the public. One of the focuses of the 1990 Earth Day was recycling. So it went global, but the focus was local. This began a trend towards individual action rather than political change. A New York Times article interviewed people who were concerned that Earth Day had become a spectator sport rather than an opportunity for a political message. Young people interviewed for the article in 1990 said they were more interested in the free music concerts in the park. The 1970 Earth Day has been a tough act to follow, especially given the progress that followed in its wake. The United States created the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act were all passed soon after. There has been criticism that Earth Day has become too temperate and too celebratory in the face of climate change, rampant pollution, and boil water advisories. Of course, it's important to remember that the leaders of the environmental protection movement work hard all year round. Indigenous leaders from Idle No More to the water protectors at Standing Rock are educating and inspiring, and their work goes beyond the goals of the first Earth Day. Is Earth Day still a tool for progress? One of the ways we can look at that question is by asking, to what extent does public knowledge reflect scientific evidence on the environment? Climate change is seen as our largest global environmental concern, and yet a 2016 poll shows that 39% of Canadians don't believe climate change is caused by human activity. 
This comes from a poll conducted over five years with more than 5,000 participants. This year's March on Science was a return to the political rallies of the 1970s. The Edmonton March for Science was one of 20 organized marches in Canada and 600 worldwide. The marches show solidarity for American scientists who are faced with funding cuts and muzzling policies from the Trump administration. Protesters carried signs that read, Science, not silence. Deny science, expect defiance, and the revolution will be peer-reviewed. The March for Science is a revival of the environmental movement. If Earth Day is going to remain a day for progress, we're going to need informed citizenry to lead political and economic forces in the right direction. To end off this ecobabble, I'm going to read an abridged version of John McConnell's Earth Day proclamation. Whereas a new worldview is emerging through the eyes of our astronauts and cosmonauts, we now see our beautiful blue planet as a home for all people. And whereas, Planet Earth is facing a grave crisis, which only the people of Earth can resolve in the delicate balances of nature, essential for our survival, can only be saved through a global effort involving all of us. Whereas, an International Earth Day each year can provide a special time to draw people together in appreciation of their mutual home, Planet Earth, and bring a global feeling of community through realization of our deepening desire for life, freedom and love, and our mutual dependence on each other. That was Dylan Hall and Lauren Carter with an eco-babble on Earth Day. Next up, we dive deep into the archives to rediscover this gem of an interview with Canada's superstar, Chris Hadfield. Because he's an astronaut. Ha <laughs> uh, Gold. After spending 166 days in outer space, a period in which he completed two spacewalks and spent five months as the first Canadian ever to command the International Space Station, Commander Chris Hadfield has arrived back on Earth, and boy did he leave his mark up there in the final frontier. While he was leading Expedition 35 this year, Hadfield captivated the world by sending incredible photos, awe-inspiring videos, and entertaining tweets back down to Earth. And in doing so, he single-handedly rekindled our interest in space exploration. Once he planted his two feet back on Earth, it seemed like everybody wanted to know, what's it like up there in the final frontier? Admittedly, we weren't above the question either. When Commander Chris Hadfield came into the CJSR studios last week, it was the first question we had for him. What's it like to walk amongst the stars? It is almost by definition mind-numbing to be out there. 
It's as if you tried to narrate a sunset. It was right then and there, in my interview with Chris Hadfield, that I realized something. Considering that language is an entirely Earth-orientated, man-made creation, it may not even be possible for us Earthlings down here to wrap our heads around the experience of being up there. The only people remotely capable of relating to the experience, let alone talking about such a thing, would be a handful of individuals who have actually floated in the cosmos. So with that, I'm just going to step aside here and let Commander Chris Hadfield take over the controls. My pleasure, Matt. A spacewalk is a really complicated thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to do. It's something you only do for a really specific purpose. The purpose of doing our spacewalk was to start building the Canadian robot arm on the space station. And that purpose had been defined 15 years prior. So people had been getting ready for that day for 15 years. I had been getting ready for that day for about five years, specifically. Uh, I was the lead space walker. So it's a long process. I had trained hundreds and hundreds of hours underwater, virtual reality simulators, tabletop sessions. Uh, I'd gotten a good night's sleep before. It was my third night, uh, the third day in orbit. So I guess my second night sleep. Um, we had just docked with the space station and uh, was going to go outside using the shuttle's airlock. You start getting dressed that morning uh, and you wear, of course, you wear a diaper under everything because you're going to be in a spacesuit for eight or nine hours. And then a liquid cooling garment, which is like custom-made long underwear full of plastic tubing that you can pump water through. Because when you go outside uh, in the sun, it's plus 150 C, hotter than boiling water. And in the shade, it's minus 120 C. So you need something to shield you from that. So we wear a liquid cooling garment. And, and then you slowly build your spacesuit around you, one piece at a time. But you, what you're really doing is building a spaceship around you a one-person spaceship that looks like a suit of clothing. But it has a life support system, it has communication, it has uh, an electrical system, it has a cooling system. I mean, it's all there in your suit. And it even has a jet pack, so that if you inadvertently let go of the station and your little safety tether failed, you could activate your jet pack and fly back. So it's a complicated suit. On Earth, it would weigh more than I do, on the order of 100 kilos, just the suit itself. Uh, and once you get it built around you, it's 100% oxygen inside. So not air, but oxygen. And uh, we get in the airlock, close the hatch, start dropping the pressure in the airlock down to zero until eventually you are floating in your little oxygen bubble, your little suit inside um, an airlock, which is like a phone booth. And it's time to open the hatch. And uh, I was the lead spacewalker. My first time out, I was in charge, which is really unusual. Normally, we trade off experience, but just the way we decided to do it, uh, I was lead. So I had all the responsibility. Open up the hatch, push it open. Actually, you pull this big metal hatch open and then push open a fabric cover, a thermal cover on the outside. And then finally, after all of that preparation, 15 years, for everybody, five years or four years of training just for me and a lifetime of anticipation, I pulled myself out into space. So the world is ripping by underneath you. And as you pull yourself outside, 
None of your senses give you any useful information. Your, your touch and your taste and your smell and your hearing, they're all still locked inside your spacesuit with you. So you, they don't give you any indication that you've just pulled yourself out into the universe. But your eyeballs, they're telling you a whole different story. They're telling you that on your left is the universe. In fact, on your left and under your feet, you're not, you're not standing on the surface of something looking up at the universe. You are in the universe. It's around you and beside you and under you. And the world is now sort of up and above you to one side. And you don't feel like you're of the world. You feel like you're looking at the world from somewhere else, which is a very different feeling than you've had the rest of your life. And your only link with seven billion people is uh, what you're holding onto with one hand. It's, a, it's an overwhelmingly visual place to be. It's as if you tried to narrate a sunset. I mean, you could do your best, and now there's huge oranges and yellows and bright reds, and you know, you could choose all of the adjectives in the world, but you'll never narrate a sunset properly. Uh, and a spacewalk is like one continuous, roaring, multicolor, technicolor, texture-filled sunset the whole time. So it's, it's just a physically beautiful place to be. But, you know, something, it's not just visual. You're not just looking at a picture. You are looking at the world. So the import of it is important as well. The, uh, how you got there, why you're there, the amount of history and, and human uh, culture that you can see in one glance. You know, in one look, you can see from the mouth of the Nile all the way to the source of the Nile. In one look, when you think of the history of, of the pyramids and the pharaohs and and the search for the source of the Nile and all everything, you know, the ancient where we originally sprang from as a species, it's all there, just laid out underneath you. So it's not just visually stupendous; it is uh, it is it's just stupendous to see as a human being. Um, you are profoundly alone, but you are not lonely. Uh, in my experience, the loneliest peoples live in cities. Loneliest of all people live in the center of cities. And I, so it's obviously not a geographical or a locational question, right? It's a, it's a self-perception and a psychological thing as to whether you're lonely or not. Um, when you are uh, with a group of uh, super talented close friends that is the rest of your crew and where you can see the whole world pouring by next to you you know if, if you wait 10 minutes you'll see another city with six million people in it it's not lonely at all you've and act, actually oddly enough I think I felt more closely connected and more closely communicating with the world when you can see the whole thing at once than I do in a regular regular day. In a regular day, you're kind of trapped by geography, right? You know, I, I can only see this tiny little bit of the world, and I can only communicate really with the people around me. When you go around the world 16 times a day, it just becomes one place, and, and you feel very much part of it. I, uh, I never intended it to change my perspective, right? And, and sometimes it's hard to see 
if your own perspective has changed. Huh, you know, how do you know? The third flight, though, I was up for five months, the better part of half a year. Then you really have a time to maybe evolve a little bit and to change your thinking, to have your thoughts drift. What I found myself saying without even thinking about it was when I referred to people somewhere around the world, at first I would talk about maybe the nationality. I would call these people whatever. These people are Syrians or those people down there are whatever, Chinese. But after a while, I just started calling everybody us. And it was interesting to see that happen inside myself. And I look down at some big city and say, hey, that's where six million of us live. And it's because of the pervasive uh, unifying uh, effect of, of seeing the world as one place over and over and over again. You, you lose that sense of us and them. And instead, you just see kind of it all as us. That was an interview from Matt Hergy with Chris Hatfield. That was out of this world. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Before we go, here's this week's edition of What's Happening. The People's Climate March is coming up. This Saturday, April 29th, in cities around the world, people will be rising up to march for climate action and justice. The grandmother of this march will be occurring in Washington, D.C., with sister marches happening all over the earth, from South America to Africa to Australia to Europe to Canada. The Edmonton March will be in Churchill Square at 12 o'clock p.m. The Vancouver March will be at Science World, 1455 Quebec Street at 1 p.m. The Regina March will be at the Saskatchewan Legislature at 12 o'clock p.m. The Toronto March will be at Allen Gardens, 160 Gerard Street, East Toronto at 12 o'clock p.m. The Ottawa March will be at Confederation Park, Laurier Ave, West and Elgin Street at 12 o'clock p.m. If you are interested in finding a march near you, want more information, or want to start a march in your community, visit peoplesclimate.org. From Wednesday, April 5th until Monday, June 5th, Edmonton and nine other communities, Rockville, Hamilton, Mississauga, Nova Scotia, Oakville, Toronto, Vancouver, Foghan, and Winnipeg will compete to see who can clean up the most litter. The campaign is called hashtag clean Canada up together and is organized as part of the Canada 150 celebration. In Edmonton, Capital City cleanup events will take place between April 22nd and May 7th, the date of the annual river cleanup. Countrywide cleanup events are scheduled to occur throughout April and May, with official litter collection tallies from all events posted on World Environmental Day, June 5th. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca, and while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Also, upon completing the survey, you can enter a draw for the chance to win the opportunity to host Terraforma like we are right now. If you're from another city, no problem. You can still co-host from afar. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. 
Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Dylan Hall for headlines, Shelley Jo Duane for doing our website, and Lauren Carter for production. We've been your hosts, Carter Krasitza and Amanda Rooney. Catch you next week on Terra Informa.